Chapter 3. The Sentence Sheriff Pauling wasn't a cruel man. Rass had fond memories of the Paulings being dinner guests in the Veer home occasionally, but looking at him through steel bars felt very different from sitting across the dinner table from him. The stale smell of regret and half-cleaned sick in the cells was difficult for Rass to ignore as he worked out a plan. Pauling looked over at Rass, reclining back in his chair across the small room. You ready to talk, or would you like to keep stewing? I wouldn't hurt old Harley, Rass said. Witnesses saw him climb aboard your ship last night. He was found there this morning after he didn't show for a shift. Unconscious, burns and bruises all over his body. Your mother said you told her you got home around midnight. The sheriff stood and began pacing in front of Rass's cell. What can you tell me? I asked him to watch the ship for me. I Why'd you ask him to watch your ship? I didn't want scavengers mistaking it for a junker after it was torn up. Rass, Pauling said, you dock in your family's port. People here have too much respect for the Veer name to do something to your ship. Rass slumped as Pauling pulled up a chair and sat. He remained silent until Rass met his eye. You're a good kid, Erasmus. Eli raised you right. Don't prove me wrong. Is old Harley going to be all right? Rass asked weakly. Was it self-defense? He asked. Rass flinched at the thought of himself attacking the family friend. Then it dawned on him. Old Harley's a knack, isn't he? Rass asked, immediately wishing he hadn't voiced the question. He didn't want anyone getting close enough to blow themselves and his ship to bits, and hadn't considered old Harley would snoop. Did you not deposit your collection before docking? The sheriff sounded noticeably relieved. No, Rass said, burying his hope beneath his shameful expression. If all it took to get off the hook was taking his ship out of dock to head to the collective's drop-off station, he could make a run for it to find another convergence. He could even feign engine problems and dump the collection once he made it close enough to the cloud level that it wouldn't hurt Verdant. It's not that bad, Rass, Pauling said. It's not a big fine, and I'm sure Harley won't press charges. Just be smart about it next time, all right? He walked back to his desk to start filling out the paperwork. One of the two deputies Rass met earlier bolted into the room, caught sight of Rass, and stared daggers into the young man. Sir? The deputy waited for Pauling to look up. We searched his ship, and the same thing happened to Robbins. The kid brought enough energy to light up Verdant. The gavel slammed down to quiet the overcrowded courtroom as the Council of Verdant began their sentencing in the case of the City of Verdant versus Erasmus Veer. The general public had great interest in seeing the son of Elias Veer brought low as the destroyer of Verdant. Rast stood alongside his court-appointed lawyer as the Chief Justice read the counts. On the charge of one count of first-degree city sabotage, we find the defendant not guilty. Jeers and accusations shot forth from the crowd, requiring several more rounds of gavel-pounding and threats of expulsion. On the charge of 169,912 counts of attempted murder by the releasing of Convergence Great Energy within city limits, we find the defendant not guilty. For once, Rass's reputation of incompetence worked in his favor. Throughout the proceedings, nobody seemed to honestly believe he held any ill intention for the citizens of Verdant, but the prosecutor played up the need for repercussions for destroying the Convergence, even if accidentally. Rass sighed as the last of the charges that held hard time were behind him. On the charge of third-degree obstruction of energy and fueling, we find the defendant guilty. The crowd murmured in approval. The defense lawyer leaned over and whispered, That carries community service. You'll be fine. Being able to verifiably reproduce the conditions of the malfunctioning collection system saved him from a second-degree charge. On the charge of bringing a level 9 energy into the city limits without declaring it, we find the defendant guilty. Rass felt the blood drain from his face. I hereby declare that the sentence is three weeks of community service in Verdant's engine per level of potency, resulting in no more than 27 weeks, the Chief Justice said. The energy in the hold is to be confiscated and fed to the engines of Verdant to prolong its life. 
In addition, a fine will be imposed equal to the scrap value of the copper fox, and the court permanently revokes your collection license with no opportunity for appeal as of today. With the drop of the gavel, Rass flinched as his future disappeared. He fell into his chair, numb to the shouts of the men and women behind him, suggesting he be locked away forever or tossed over the side. Bailiffs roughly picked up Rass, escorting him past the throng that could no longer contain their vitriol towards him. He could see his mother in tears, and for a moment he thought he caught a glimpse of Callie before he was shoved through the side door. It pained him to imagine the headache she must be suffering just to come out to watch his trial. He struggled not to pick out words like useless, incompetent, idiot, and worst of all, lack, filtering into the hallway from the courtroom. How many cities have been destroyed by one mistake? Ushered in behind Rass, Emma strode next to her son as he walked down the long corridor. The shouts gave way to the clacks of boots on the hard floor as the entourage escorted Rass toward the side exit of the courthouse. Upon reaching the doors, Rass was met by a throng of reporters and some of the crowd from the courtroom that had already rushed outside to catch one more glimpse of him. Just before he reached the bottom step, he stopped and turned around to address the crowd. Cameras began snapping wildly and the crowd hushed to hear his statement. Rass took a breath to speak, held it for a moment, then simply said, I'm so sorry. He could already see his picture with those three words atop it on the front page of tomorrow's newspaper. Emma stepped into Miss Torbian's borrowed skiff that awaited them. Rast followed, then shut the passenger door, drowning out the shutter clicks and accusations. And with the press of a button, the world hates me, Rast said. Emma looked over to her son for a moment. I've never told anyone this, but you're not the only veer to destroy a convergence. Rast turned his attention from the window to his mother for a moment, waiting. She continued. I don't know how your father found it, but it got us through our early years together. He never told anyone he would dip below the clouds, but little by little he'd collect enough to not make anyone suspicious, paid off the ship and house before he killed it. Ras didn't know how he could have gotten so close being part knack. Was it an accident? No, it was intentional. Your father got it in his head that convergences were collections of poor knack souls that were bound together, waiting to be freed to return to the origin. He had heard that theory from his father before. Since Elias wasn't sure of it, Rast remained skeptical. So, Dad would have thought I did the right thing? Maybe, Emma said, starting the skiff's engine. This was a few years before the winter was built, of course, so we weren't expecting the Collective to take away our ability to stay in the air forever. She pressed on the accelerator, leaving the courtroom behind them. There's someone I think you should talk to. Old Harley struggled to sit up in his hospital bed. Come in. Sit. Sit. He coughed, gestured for Rast and Emma to enter. It's good to see you. Rass hadn't believed that he could have felt any worse than he already did, but the sight of Harley's ashen complexion somehow managed to sharpen his shame. Harley, I'm so sorry, he began. Oh, put a cork in it, kid. All week long it's been reporters, deputies, or doctors. It's nice to see a familiar face. I kept telling them if I hadn't been such a busybody, I'd be fine right now. Serves me right, he said. You know who should be sorry? The Collective. Why's that? Emma asked, taking a seat. With verdant sinking and no more convergences in the area, they're pulling out. Who are the wind merchants going to sell to now? The least they could do is install their Helios engines so we could buy fuel, but it's like they're punishing us for not buying from them in the first place. They hiked up the prices on their engines and fuel, too, all on account of the skirmish they got going on with the Sky Pirates. He scoffed. Load of malarkey, I tell ya. The beeps from the machinery were the only sound filling the room for the next few minutes. How much do you think the Collective would charge to swap out Verdant's engines? Rass ventured at last. Oh, I don't know. More than anyone around here's got. Probably all put together. Your father saw this coming. That's why he split. Harley, Emma said, angered. She softened her expression and shook her head when Rass looked at her for clarification. He did not split. 
He went to find a solution for Verdon that wasn't going to stuff the pockets of the collective, she said in a phrase Ress heard many times growing up. Emma, the man said he had a mission from Hal Napier himself. What? Ress asked. Emma stood up. That's enough. The boy needs to know sometime, Harley protested. What exactly did Ras need to know? The rumors that you hear third or fourth hand at the docks? If he wants to know more about his father, he can ask me, not some deckhand, she said, then stormed out. The two men sat silent for a moment. Your father was a good man, Ras. I overstepped my bounds, Harley said, not meeting Ras's gaze. Do you believe he met Hal? Ras asked. That's a hard thing to say. I think it's possible he met someone that flew the Kingfisher, but that ship would have to be at least 100 years old or more. That part's plausible. I think I saw the Kingfisher. Harley shifted in his bed, then peered out into the hallway before looking back to Rass. Where? Rass lowered his voice. Way above the convergence and framers. I didn't get a long look, but how many other ships can fly above the mountains there? Have you told anybody? Rass shook his head. People would just think I was crazy. You flew beneath the clouds and collected a convergence. You have a little wiggle room for discussing the impossible, Harley said. I think I upset your mother a good bit. Would you pass along my apologies? Rass nodded and stood. If that was Hal, or even the same person that my dad met, do you think they could help Verdant? Couldn't hurt to ask, Harley said. Without a ship, Rass didn't know how he'd be able to make it out to find the Kingfisher, let alone fly up to meet it. But opportunities to put things right for Verdant weren't exactly jumping into his lap. He'd find a way. Bidding goodbye to old Harley, Rass turned and left the room to find his mother. Emma had reached the main entrance of the hospital before Rass caught up with her. She wiped away smudged makeup while Rass kept pace with her short strides. I'm not asking you to talk about it, he said. I'm fine talking about your father, she said. It's just some people have very inaccurate information about why he left. If he knew Verdant was in trouble, why didn't we just move to a city that ran on Helios engines? Emma stopped. Because he didn't know how to quit when it came to helping others. Should he have? Rass asked. She took a deep breath before shaking her head. It was one of his better qualities. Verdon would have been overrun with Sky Pirates if he had quit. It's just a shame. She started but restrained herself. What's a shame? We were going to raise you on the Silver Fox, not be tethered to any Helios-built system. It's just a shame that's not how it worked out. Why didn't it? Emma half-smiled. There were just some things your father needed to do on his own. Like work for Halcyon Napier? Ress asked. I don't know what Harley was talking about. There were a lot of rumors about why your father left, but it wasn't for some long-dead war hero. Mom? Ress asked. I'm sorry I lost the ship. She embraced him tightly. I still have you. Forget the ship. The first day of community service in the guts of Verdant made it very difficult to simply forget the ship. Gone were the clouds, replaced by flickering lights and dank pipes that smelled of stagnation. Rass meandered down the long corridors lined with cables and wires, his boots clanking on the iron-graded walkway. Three engineers passed Rass in a half-jog, ignoring the newcomer. Leaving the world plastered with newspapers showing his name and photo was a surprisingly welcome respite, even after enduring one morning of walking to his new job. Bronze signs pointed Rass in the direction of the dimly lit main office. The eight-walled room consisted of twenty blueprint-laden desks and one woman with a mop of curly hair pouring over one of the sets. She looked to be in her mid-forties and filled out a jumpsuit that had once been a sky blue, but now more resembled a patchwork of grays, greens, and browns, with the occasional hint of its original color. The mostly white name patch read, Billy. You the new grunt? Billy asked, not looking up. Rass mumbled something resembling an affirmation. Good. Glad they gave me someone with spunk, she said. Come on, I'll show you to your station. She began to walk and Rass followed. How long have you worked down here? Rass asked. Well, 
I was born down here, so you do the math, she said. Rass had heard of some communities that lived within Verdant, underneath the top layer. The rumor was that they originated from groups that either hated heights or sought seclusion. Do you go up top much? Occasionally. My father was an axe, so he was forced to live below ground when Verdant launched. Forced? I didn't know that. Yeah, most people chose to forget that tidbit or didn't pass it on to their kiddos, Billy said. A few became wind merchants, but the rest wound up here. They took a turn down a corridor that looked exactly the same as the one they left. Rask could already see himself getting hopelessly lost on a regular basis. How do you know where you're going? Rass asked. Most people who work down here are children or grandchildren of Nax, so some of that gets passed down. We can sense where the engines are and how the energy flows through the city, she said, gesturing to the conduits and valves all around. Foster Helios designed the cities to give Nax a special purpose and to keep him safe. Because we didn't know how much energy was above the clouds? No, because everyone hated us for destroying the world. Well, not us. My grandfather's generation. Not that they could help it, she said. They stopped at a small supply closet. Billy opened it, extracted a mop, bucket, and gas mask, then handed Rass the lot. Sub-level 4 had an oil leak that needs cleaning up after. I'm sorry, I thought I was supposed to be working on the engine. You are, she said. Underneath, we refer to everything and everyone as the engine. We work together to keep the city flying, no matter what. You up for that? Aside from making it on board the Kingfisher, Rass couldn't think of any other way to begin balancing the scale, but this was by far the more practical way to help Verdant. Sub-level 4 greeted Rass with an acrid smell that prompted him to immediately slap on the gas mask, which did little to shut out the odor. He saw a dozen other masked workers already cleaning the corridor. Lunch break is at noon on sub-level 2, Billy said, the gas mask muffling her voice and forcing Rass to strain in order to hear her. Did you bring anything? Lunch was one of the many small picture things that had slipped Rass's mind lately. He shook his head, wiggling the mask and distorting his vision. There's a cafeteria you can buy something from, but I don't recommend it. She paused. I have an extra sandwich if you like. The generous offer struck him. Out of curiosity, do you know why I'm down here? It was a loaded question, but Rass had grown weary of waiting for the other shoe to drop. I do, she said. Just about everybody does. Why are you being so nice? Her mask lifted slightly, indicating a smile. Down here we come from a line of people accused of ending the world by accident. But we're still alive, and I figure we'll still be alive after this all gets sorted out, she said. Of course, you'll run into some folk that aren't going to enjoy their job getting harder, but everyone down here appreciates a good second chance. Don't waste it. She placed a hand on Rass's shoulder, then shoved him out of the elevator. Now, off to work with you. The morning passed quickly. Nobody spoke to Rass, but he also imagined nobody knew who he was in a jumpsuit and gas mask, so he didn't take it personally. The work was tedious, but necessary, and Rass took a small amount of pride in the part he played. At noon, he left to find his way to sub-level two, and after a few errant turns, he found his way to the crowded mess hall, which was filled with long-benched tables. Billy sat at one in the corner and beckoned Rass over before re-engaging two men in a spirited debate. A fiery red-haired man in a white lab coat gesticulated wildly with an unlit pipe. Forget the collective. If Verdant won't fit through the main pass of the bowl, then all we need are wind merchants willing to collect outside the bowl to feed our engines. Have you ever been outside the bowl? A man with an eye patch and a short, military-style haircut spoke with a gruff voice. His dark green jumpsuit held the patch the red eight, and Rass wondered what it meant. Wind merchants had been getting soft, trolling around. Half of them probably couldn't even navigate the mountain passes out of here, let alone fend off India Bravo to bring back what little they do find. Well, do you have a better idea? The redhead asked. Rass sat down on the bench facing the wall next to Billy, and she introduced him. Rass, I'd like you to meet my two best friends. Finn, she said, nodding toward the redhead. He works in our medical wing. Finn extended a hand. Rass? Rass accepted the handshake and found his hand vigorously shaken twice before release. And this gentleman is Guy, 
she said. That's generous, Guy said. The man with the eye patch managed to make a point of not extending his hand, but acknowledged Ras' presence with a nod. At least you showed up. Billy slid a wrapped sandwich over to Ras as Finn continued. Yeah, but the only reason they got soft is because the Collective did the dirty work fighting the pirates. Thanks to the kid here, they finally buggered off and we can go back to being self-sustaining. We're never going to be self-sustaining with the winner we're just sitting there. I mean, I don't remember getting to vote on building a giant dome over the origin, Guy said. Ras took another bite of his sandwich, taking in the exchange. He swallowed and said, What if they took away the winnowware and just used it as a refinement plant to bring collected energy? Guy shook his head. What business would start paying people for what it already gets free? Besides, it's how they fuel their war with the Sky Pirates. Little fear goes a long way, and most people can still sleep easy in their beds if a few cities fall from the sky as long as they feel like someone is keeping them safe. They set themselves up nice, Finn said. Opposing them means being for the Sky Pirates, he sighed. We don't want to rape and pillage, we just don't want to fall out of the sky. I just want to know, Guy said, jutting a thumb at Rass, how someone like him flew below the clouds. Easy on the new guy. Billy said, shooting Guy a menacing look. He's been here for a whole four hours. We've got six months with him. Chief is saying the city's engine reserves are only buying us one month if we don't get a new influx, Finn said, inspecting his pipe. Then we have a month to get to know him. Maybe we can make it two or three, maybe more. He's here to help us eke out every ounce of efficiency we can out of the old girl, and that won't happen if we don't work together. One month, Ras thought. wonder if they knew that during sentencing. I'm fine taking my chances on the ground, Finn said, nodding to Ras. If they're saying there's no more energy in the bowl, why not? Yeah, that's great. Let's just pretend the Convergence won't come flying by and kill us all. Or maybe you'd like to get torn apart by remnants, Guy said, picking up his tray and slamming it on the table before storming off from the bench. Don't mind him, Finn said. He likes you. Really? Ras asked. No, I was just trying to be nice. The rest of the afternoon, Ras made a point of avoiding Guy even though Billy placed him on Guy's maintenance crew. His duty consisted of running any errand for the twenty men and women assigned to the well-being of Engine 8. While not being sent out, he observed the crew's personal sign language to overcome communication barriers while working around the large, droning beast of an engine that stood at least sixty feet high. Some signs were easy to understand, like wrench and brake. Others, like, I want you to go to engine three and ask for a three-quarters inch thick lead pipe, took a lot more work and usually broke down to scribbling on a piece of paper Ras had begged for from Billy during one of his trips. After his fifth trip request to retrieve a specific tool from halfway across Verdant, it became apparent that his job was to get out of the way for long stretches of time. Upon returning from his seventh trek, he found an entirely different crew working on engine eight. He looked down to his watch and saw his shift had ended twenty minutes prior. The main office was filled with staff when Ras found it, and he spotted Billy, a handful of curly hair clenched in her hand as she stared at the documents on her desk. Ras stood silent for a few moments, then coughed politely. I see ya, Billy said, still reading. Do I need to sign anything to check out? Ras asked. She looked up. The hair she had been holding stuck up at an odd angle. Nah, I gotcha. Ras nodded and began to turn around, but stopped. Can I ask why you put me on Guy's team? All I did this afternoon was run around. They're just getting you acquainted with the city in their own way, she said, giving a tired smile. It'll probably be the same tomorrow. What does Guy have against me? Ras asked, besides the usual. That's something you'll have to talk with him about. She waved her hand in a dismissive motion. Shoo. I've got an engine to run. I'll see you first thing tomorrow. With his blue jumpsuit doffed and slung over his arm, Ras leaned his weight on the heavy metal door leading back to Verdant's streets. The door creaked open, revealing a street lamp lit square populated with one inhabitant. Callie. He didn't want her to see him like this, but those feelings couldn't override the grin she brought to his face. She even looked cute engulfed by her father's overstuffed brown coat. Walk me home? 
she asked as if she needed to. Rass offered his arm before remembering he probably smelled of engine grease and sweat and hoped Callie wouldn't notice. She graciously accepted and they began their trek to the residential district. What brings you out this way? he asked. He noticed the streetlights were dimmer than usual, which allowed for the stars to make a more prominent appearance in the sky. I thought you could use a friend. She walked along the sidewalk in an uneven pace, as though following the rhythm of some song in her head. How was it? I made a few friends, I think, Rass said. How are things up here? Callie shrugged. Fine if you don't listen to the news reports. Everybody keeps talking about what happened when the city of Warwick lost their energy source just after the winter started up. Warwick sank? Rass asked. No, they bought Helios engines, but it didn't stop the people from panicking and throwing people over the edge hoping they'd overload and make a convergence, she said. Rass could feel her shiver and hug his arm tighter. How sky pirate of them, he said. I thought convergences strong enough to support a city were made of tens of thousands of people from the Great Overload. Logic wasn't their strongest suit, she said. At least that's not happening here yet. He tried not to imagine the citizens of Verdant panicking and throwing wind merchants and engine workers overboard as a last-ditch effort. Does your dad know you're here? Her laughter cut through the chill of the night. I might have mentioned it. Might have? I'd give it a 5% chance, Callie said. You're trying to get me killed, I hope you know that. Rass said as they turned a corner to walk along one of the main avenues. He took note of a man with a dark, wide-brimmed hat watching them silently from underneath a drugstore stoop. She slipped her arm out from his crook and stepped up to a raised walkway, playfully balancing with arms extended and keeping pace with Rass. You still haven't told me what the convergence was like. Every time Rass looked back to check on the man with the hat, he was met with a stare. Uh, how about you tell me about your book first, he asked. He didn't want his distracted explanation of convergence alerting her to the man interested in them. You're still going to read it, right? Of course. I'd read it even if it was about an untalented wind merchant named Russ that accidentally crashed his city. Oh, come on, you're not untalented, she said, shooting him an accusatory look. I'm talking about Russ. Did you think I met me? Rass asked, feigning hurt feelings. Seriously, though, I know it's about the train from your dreams, but what's the story? He looked back to see the man with the hat now walking on the sidewalk 20 feet behind them. He picked up his pace and was relieved when Callie instinctively quickened her step to match his. Well, I'm having to do a lot of research to make sure it's as accurate as possible, she said. History piece? Set during the Clockwork War. I'm already interested, Rass said, distraction creeping into his voice. There's nobody named Russ in it, but I can fix that if you like, she said, hopping down from the ledge. Anyway, the train is carrying children away from cities that the elders are bombarding. Uh-huh, Rass said, checking over his shoulder once more. The man wasn't there. So where do they go? You'll have to read it, Callie said. They rounded the corner to the entrance of the residential zone and almost bowled into the man with a hat. A gray mustache accentuated his gaunt face, and he bore a haughty look of a man accustomed to having authority. His disquietingly blue eyes looked down a long nose at Rass. Erasmus Veer? Rass paused for a moment and gently reached out for Callie's arm. Can I help you? Yes. Yes, you can. His tone held a roughness to it. He wrinkled his nose as though Rass offered an offensive odor. If I could borrow you for a word. Rass glanced over to Callie and said, I'm afraid I promised to get her home. Perhaps another time? Rass couldn't imagine a stranger having good news for him and thought it more likely the man would lead him to a waiting lynch mob. The tall man narrowed his eyes. I am a patient man, Mr. Veer. I can wait. He stepped aside to let the pair pass. Rass and Callie took their cue and continued walking, remaining silent until they were well past the man. Who? Callie began. I have absolutely no idea. Creepy, she said. All right, maybe we should take a skiff, Rass said. Can't. The city is cracking down on energy usage. It's not much further. She hugged herself for warmth. It's kind of thrilling, isn't it? Being followed? 
One thing Rass always admired about Callie was her incredibly romantic imagination. The few days Rass had spent cooped up inside his own house led to pure boredom, but somehow Callie never got bored. She read and she wrote, and Rass imagined this moment being an addition to whatever book she was planning on writing next. I suppose thrilling could describe it. What happens next, O worker of fiction? he asked. Well, the couple unexpectedly... Couple? Rass blurted, wishing desperately to pull the word back. Yes, couple. Two people makes a couple, three makes a few. What does four make? She hid well whatever embarrassment Rass caused. A crowd, I think? Or death, classically. Then let's hope Mr. Hat hasn't brought a friend, Rass said. They glanced over their shoulders to see the man keeping pace with them, not caring about being detected. Nope, still a few. She resumed walking. Where was I? Ah, so the couple doesn't suspect that the reason they're being followed is because he has a secret mission for one of them that the other can't know about. She narrowed her wild eyes, reveling in her storytelling. You doing spy work on the side? He asked, arching an eyebrow. Wouldn't you like to know? Ha! I knew it. What? All your books. They're just secret ciphers you're sending out to the elders or the clockworks. Same thing, she corrected. Hmm, that's something a spy would know. Or someone who didn't sleep through history classes, she said. Or that, he said. So, what sort of spy job are you getting this time? No clue. I'm not the one he wanted to talk to, remember? He did remember, and began to wonder about the old man's reason for pursuing him. They were only a block away from Callie's house, and the man still followed them. Hey, if I'm missing in the morning... I'll put it in my story that you put up a heroic fight, but in the end we're no match for an old man. Thanks. That's exactly what I was hoping for. Just give me more muscles in the story. Your muscles are fine. An awkward moment. I mean, unless, of course, you wanted to further the irony, she said. They made it up to her porch, and Rass turned to see the man across the street, staring. Maybe if I get to be a spy, your books will start making more sense to me. She crinkled her nose. Now you're just being mean, she said, opening the front door. See you tomorrow? She rested her head on the door and gazed at him with blue eyes that sparkled in the porch light. Wouldn't miss it. You'll have to show me the secrets by handshake, he smiled. Good night, Callista he said. He usually called her Callie for the familiarity of it, but he liked the way Callista rolled off the tongue. Good night, Erasmus, she said, and gently closed the door. Rass would have savored the moment more if he hadn't felt the bore of the man's stare on the back of his neck. He turned around to address his stalker, only to see an empty sidewalk.